Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is TalkSport Daily. Hello. Happy Christmas Day, everyone. Yeah, I've had to come in, especially on Christmas Day, drive in, the roads are empty, just to record this link on this podcast so you can hear 25 years on, colon, Ireland at USA 94. The, the word colon, it doesn't, it doesn't say the word colon. There's actually, oh, is that a semicolon? I can never remember. The, the full stop above another full stop. Let me... 25 years on, two full stops on top of each other. Ireland at USA 94. Not really a catchy title, is it? I mean, it could have easily been quarter of a century since Ireland were at the World Cup. Maybe that. Or 25 years since USA hosted, I know, didn't... Yeah, I suppose it's okay. Anyway, this is a one-hour TalkSport exclusive. Looking back at, yeah, you guessed it, USA 94. 25 years, you have told you that in the title, from that World Cup. That's it, is it? It's hosted by Stubbsy. Ray Stubbsy is in the next room waiting for me to finish this so he can start. It features Ray Houghton. All right, Ray. Tony Cascarino. All right, Cas. He's over there. You can't hear him there through the mouth. Ronnie Whelan's here. Ronnie, what are you doing on Christmas? Huh? Yeah, you'll be out soon. I'll finish. Mark Lawrenson's here. Mm. What's that like to Anyway, along with TalkSport presenters, Danny Kelly. Where's Danny? Where's Danny? Oh, there he's over there. All right, Dan. No, he's in the kitchen. You can't see me. Paul Hawksby's here. Hi, Paul. And Andy Jacob. Oh, no, his nurse is here. Where's Andy? You're not woken him up yet. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, have a listen to it. There's loads of other words. I mean, there's so many words here. I can't be bothered. But if you haven't worked out what's on this podcast, from everything I've just said and the title, Christmas Day, 25 years on Ireland at USA 94, then you're downloading the wrong thing anyway. So sit back and enjoy some magical moments from the stuff I've already told you about. 25 years ago in the summer of 1994, the FIFA World Cup finals were held in the United States outside of Europe and Latin America for the first time. None of the home nations qualified, but the Republic of Ireland did, and more than played their part in the story that followed. Townsend right in there. Houghton also making his presence felt. There's his shot! It's a goal for Ireland! Winalda. Oh, it's in! America have equalised! There's a show, glorious goal. He's done it, Maradona. And look at these emotional scenes. What's going on here? That John Aldridge wants to go on, and the officials won't let him on. Do you know as well? Diakov, Diakov, big turn by him, and Letskov going in, and it's another one. Bulgaria are in front. Letskov. It didn't go up, but it looked as though there was an offside. Everybody stopped, and this is Bebeto. <laughs> it's Samba time at the Cotton Bowl. 
the saviour of Italy throughout this tournament. He's missed it, and Brazil win the World Cup. I'm Ray Stubbs, and over the next hour, coming to America, Ireland at USA 94, we'll look back on what proved to be a memorable tournament. And the Republic of Ireland team and their fans played leading roles. Many had expressed doubts the United States was the right place to hold World Cup finals. But as things turned out, the tournament set and still holds records for attendances and revenue generated. And more to the point, the football was good. It was the first World Cup since the outlaw of the back pass, first time of three points for a win. And for the first time since 1938, none of the home nations took part. A Graham Taylor at England failed to qualify. What is love? Do I not like that? So goes. And Bachocchi, number nine, picks the ball up straight away and San Marino launched the first attack. Oh, and a mistake by Stuart Pearce and San Marino had scored. I don't believe this. Here's TalkSport presenter Paul Hawksby. It was a, a terrible shock. I mean, that San Marino game was ridiculous anyway. You know, I, I, I missed the first goal. I, I, that thing, I'll sit down and watch the game. We were hoping against hope because we didn't expect results would go away and allow us to go through. But to be 1-0 down after a few moments was a ludicrous way to start. It was a real shock to the system. I'd been to the World Cup draw in, in New York, in Madison Square Garden in 1991, where all the groups had been put together. And I didn't think... For one moment, considering, you know, it wasn't that long after Italia 90 and how well we'd done, that we wouldn't be there. So it, it was a terrible shock to the system. Here's TalkSport presenter Danny Kelly. I remember in this country there was absolute dread that we hadn't qualified for the World Cup. I'm old enough to remember them not qualifying in the early 70s as well. But this was this was doubled, I think, by the fact that it was going to be in America. And the, the build-up of the tournament was dominated by... Oh, what's it going to be like? Will the crowd be cheering the throw-ins and all the rest of it? As it turned out, it was a very different World Cup. And I have to say this very quietly, no one, once you were there, and I went to that World Cup and you know, watched a lot of it as well on television, nobody missed England, and there was a good reason for that. They, were, they weren't very remarkable. But there were two English managers of World Cup 94. Crystal Palace boss Roy Hodgson was in charge of the Swiss side. 1966 World Cup winner Jack Charlton was at the helm of the Republic of Ireland team although qualifying for the tournament had been far from straightforward. Well, who knows? Listen, maybe we've, we've had the good days, maybe the bad days that have come now. That's what you want me to say. That's not a bad ball. Whipped away, and it comes to Julio Salinas. This could be three. Ireland's worst nightmares are coming true. Spain have taken a 3-0 lead, and there are still 20 minutes of the first half remaining. We've had a bad day. We all want to go home and forget it. We want to come back and prepare for the next match and we'll see what happens in that one. Ahead of final group games, it was all right up in the air. Spain and Denmark were in with the chance. And it was Northern Ireland, who were out of contention, versus the Republic of Ireland in Belfast. The troubles were at their height. There'd been speculation the game would have to be switched to a neutral country because of security concerns. Mark Lawrenson won 39 caps for the Republic of Ireland he was on broadcast duty in Belfast that night. We jumped in a cab to go to Windsor Park and we could only get so far because of like the ring of steel and all that kind of stuff all around it. And I think we only had 60 people from the Republic anyway that were allowed. There's no supporters at all. 
at all. So, because they were worried about the trouble. Anyway, Rob Orthon said to me, look, he said, oh, we're going to have to find a telephone box. I went, why? He says, well, we need to do this piece and I don't think we're going to get in the ground in time. And Rob was like very much kind of, we've got to do it, got to do it. I said, okay. Anyway, so we found a telephone box. We jump in the telephone box and he's on the phone and I'm kind of stood outside. So he's doing his bit and he was handing the phone to me. All of a sudden, this army truck pulled up, literally, and the British soldiers just jumped out and like, what on earth are you doing? And and one of them looked at me and went, Laura, what are you doing? I went, we're just doing a thing into the programme. He went, why? So that's what we do. He said, no, but why here? We went, well, we couldn't make the ground. He went, he went, I suggest you hang up and hang up pretty quick. So we did. A regular in the Republic of Ireland squad was Liverpool midfielder Ronnie Whelan. There was two lads sitting on the, on the bus for us, on the coach going to the game. And as we got close to the stadium, they, they stood up and started looking out of the windows, these two fellas, and had guns. We didn't, I didn't know these people were on the bus but it was supposedly for our protection if anything was going to happen. These lads were there for it. Now, that gives you a little bit of a, a little bit of a jolt and say, my God, what's going on here? I never thought it'd be that way, but on this one it was. It was a game that we needed to win or to draw to get there, but all the trouble that surrounded it was pretty, pretty new to me because I'd played up in, up in the north before, but this was a pretty, yeah, pretty hostile one, this one. Nil-nil at half-time in Belfast. Ireland were out of the tournament. Their chances receded again when Northern Ireland scored. Jack Charlton turned to his bench and pointed to Tony Cascarino. Jack told me to get warmed up. So I get warmed up and then he's going to put me on and I take off my tracksuit top and underneath I've got a T-shirt. I've left my shirt in the dressing room. So I then say to David Kelly and Jack sort of got half an idea what's happening but the game's going on behind him. And he said, what are you doing, what are you doing? I said, my shirt, and I tried to get David Kelly's shirt. And as I've gone there, he's gone, you stupid big idiot, you've put your shirt on, a different number, you'll get us chucked out of the tournament. So he's going crazy at me and our physio, uh, Mick Byrne, and our, the kit guy, Charlie O'Leary. I've managed to get Charlie to run to the dressing room and get my shirt because I've left it in the dressing room. And uh, Jack's face is blue with thunder, having a go at me. But behind me, I could see, obviously, the celebrations because Jack's got his back to the game but actually looking at me and Alan McLaughlin scored. America seems an awful long way away at this point in the night. 13 minutes of normal time. Yes, that's plenty of time for us to get back in it. And Irwin with the free kick. Throws across it, always fell with the shot. No! Alan McLaughlin has fell with it! No! So, he's still raging with anger with me, but we've scored and got it back to 1-1. That was right next to him when it was going on, and Jack was more worried about him, you silly big soddy saying, you'll get us chucked out of the tournament. He's not even looking at what's going on behind him, he's just berating him for being such an idiot, for one leaving his shirt in the changing room, and he's screaming at David Kelly, give him your shirt. David was looking at him going, I don't know if I should give him or not, and Jack's gone screaming at the pair of them. Well, we're getting beat 1-0 and trying to yeah. qualify for the World Cup. I mean, it was such an important time. Ray Houghton and Tony Cascarino reflecting on the search for the shirt. It finished 1-1 in Belfast. Spain beat Denmark in Seville. Spain and the Republic of Ireland would go into America. Bright light said it gonna set my soul Gonna set my soul on fire Football's traditionalists were somewhat concerned when the draw for the finals was taken to Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. But there was a challenge to sell the tournament to the American people. Vegas provided the glitz. That was the goal. TalkSport presenter Paul Hawksby was there. 
It was a real proper jolly for FIFA. You could tell why they wanted to do it in Vegas uh, in December. And they had a lot of stars turn out. I remember Faye Dunaway was there, Barry Manilow. They had loads of bands playing. They made it very glitzy. And Robin Williams did uh, one of the draws and was fantastic and started mildly taking the mickey out of, uh, of a very youthful-looking set Blatter. Ladies and gentlemen... We are at the end of the draw, but it's very important. We are happy to have you. Robin, that's wonderful. Or shall I say, Mrs. Doubtfire? Oh, thank you, Mr. Blather. (laughs) (laughs) Funny, I met you just in the men's room a minute. Here we go. Kept calling him Set Blather, was pulling on surgical rubber gloves to do the draw was trying to start the draw early. It was like some sort of Chuckle Brothers routine. Sep sort of joined in at first, but then he started to lose control, and you could tell he didn't particularly like it. But it was, it was great entertainment in the room. Mr. Blatter, so nice to meet you after feeling you for so many years. Nice to have you. Thank you very much. And when the opening ceremony took place at Soldier Field in Chicago, the big guns were in the starting lineup. Oprah Winfrey, Diana Ross put a hand up to take a penalty. President Clinton gave an address. My fellow Americans, citizens of the world, the United States is honored to play host to this magnificent celebration. Diana Ross was in Chicago. I was there. I mean, it was, it, say it was hopeless, was just like, oh my goodness, only in America. It's incredible, isn't it? When you think, if you actually put a top 10 of most famous penalties, Diana Ross would be about number four. She's ended up, everything she's achieved in the music business, she's probably known for a quite terrible pen. And it's become a sort of thing of great ridicule for the Diana Ross penalties, but I thought she was unlucky. You know, she just got under the ball. She didn't keep her head or body over it. That was the thing. No, it was absolutely pathetic, wasn't it? And I love the way the goal just fell apart. It was all laid on for her, wasn't it, really? It was just a little tapping in the corner. I don't know, technique-wise, I don't quite know what she was up to. But it was very funny. It kind of crept round the post, didn't it? And then the whole kind of goal fell apart because uh, that was the big set piece. The love of soccer is now a universal language that binds us all together. The World Cup has captured the imagination of our country, as has the game itself in the last few years. But if the World Cup organisers wanted to dominate the news agenda that day, they had major competition. The United States was taking in the car chase that ended with one of their leading American footballers arrested and charged with murder. O.J. Simpson was generating headlines. The O.J. Simpson thing was remarkable because um, I happened to be in New York um, the day it was happening because I was there to do some work for the World Cup. And um, myself and uh, Danny Baker, we'd gone out to New York and we'd ended up, let's not kid ourselves, in what can only be described as a high-class strip club. And suddenly this thing, there's lots of televisions, there's a walkway and there's lines of televisions and suddenly this thing starts to unfold and one person starts looking at it Another person puts their drink down and starts staring at it. We're hearing the sirens behind us now. He is right behind us. We're hearing the sirens. The police have their sirens on. Both sides of the street have pedestrians. Right, he just, just passed us at Barrington. 
He just went past Barrington. Just it's only Barrington, followed by the sheriff, the Orange County Sheriff, Santa Ana police officers who are in pursuit. Scriptwriter's got hold of this World Cup. This is what it's going to be like, is it? Really famous sports people are going to do car chases, sometimes very slowly, on the television for us. OJ Simpson was subsequently acquitted of the charge, but the images of a white Bronco pursued by police cars, police and TV helicopters flashed around the world. That was in Los Angeles. Back in Chicago, holders Germany beat Bolivia 1-0 in the opening game of the tournament. But in some ways, the tournament kicked off the next day. And next up, the background and the story of one of the greatest ever days in the history of the Republic of Ireland's football team. Townsend right in there. Houghton also making his presence felt. There's his shot. It's a goal for Ireland! You are listening to Coming to America... Ireland at USA 94. I look back at the World Cup finals of 25 years ago. Baz, you won too much, I'd say, today. Yeah. Keane is going to mark him, you know? Best midfielder in Europe, the world. Yeah. Republic of Ireland fans flocked to New York to support their football team in an opening group game against Italy at Giant Stadium. It's tough, believe me. But at the end of the game, they'll be crying, not me. No. Italy are one of the biggest nations in the world and, and tremendously gifted, talented players that, that recognise throughout the world and, and are expected to win a World Cup. Ireland are not expected to win a World Cup. Who knows till on the day? That was Irish manager Jack Charlton. Here's Tony Cascarino, Ray Houghton and Ronnie Whelan reflecting on the build-up to the game. I think we'd all... Played long enough back from 1988 to this 94 was more or less the same squad enough. A few new faces coming in here and there. So the belief in the team was 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 there. I don't think people thought that we were going to do it again. But we never felt as, as a squad any different. Didn't matter who we were playing against. We always felt we had a great chance of beating them. We were worried about going to play in New York because you just hear of the Italian connection that's going to be full of Italians when we were on our way to the ground I was amazed to see the number of Irish supporters going to the game because we'd all led to believe that it was going to be 75% Italians 25% Irish it was the other way around we were on the bus coming to the game and we were all talking about the you know the huge contingent of his Irish fans at the game and then I was sort of sticking up for the Italians we having an Italian background blah blah so, oh there's a lot of Italians in New York and it'll be a 50-50 split and Ray said they're 75% Irish I would add it was nearly 90% Irish and, and even less than 10% Italian and um, I'm talking to Andy Townsend on the pitch before the game and uh, Jack comes up and taps me on the shoulder and I look round and he's gone do you realise you're the only f***ing Italian in this stadium? Put it in the corner, put them under pressure. That's all he said every every game we played. So it was never the the, the way we played was never gonna change, but we knew how we had to play. If you put it in behind the full backs, Jack always had this thing that all international full backs and centre backs think they can all play football and they all want to try and play out. Put the ball in behind them and then let them try play out, but we put them under pressure up there and we either win it back up there or we get a throw in or a corner kick. 
But when the teams walked out for the match, there was a problem. As we came out, the whistle goes, and it means for both teams to come out, the respective uh, areas. And it, was, it wasn't like a normal tunnel you went down. It was a big opening as you walked out. And as we came out, we looked to our left-hand side, and the Italians had the same colour shirts on as us. So we were looking at them, they're looking at us, and we're thinking, who's right and who's wrong here? And obviously we were in the wrong, and the next minute, our little kit man is getting berated by Jack for giving us the wrong kit. He's trying to go into the, all the baskets to get out the other kit. So he's getting out, we're all taking off socks, we're screaming and yeah. shouting, taking our shorts off, putting the new coloured shirts on. So as we go out there, we relax, we're like, you and it's all going off in the, in the changing room because we've got the wrong, wrong coloured kit on. It was a talented Italian side for sure, but the Republic of Ireland team were undaunted. Ronnie Whelan. We knew they'd have possession. They were a very, very good side. Um, and we knew if we just keep in the game. We did it a lot against top teams. We stayed in the game. We defended well. We were hard to be, really, really hard to beat back then. And we knew, always knew that if we something might happen, we get a chance, a corner kick, a free kick. We had a chance and then Ray comes up with yet another famous goal. Ray Houghton from... 20, 25 yards and loops in over the goalkeeper and it just sets the whole ball rolling again for us. Hounds in right in there. Houghton also making his presence felt. There's his shot. It's a goal There's no bigger stage in the World Cup. And when you score at the World Cup and you score a winning goal as well against a team that you don't normally beat, who four years earlier knocked you out the quarterfinals of the World Cup, that was absolutely amazing. And I, I just remember, it's not so much I, me scoring the goal, what I remember was... Terry feeling and Roy Keane's face. I've got a picture in my house. Now, I don't have many uh, of my footballing career, but that's one of them that I've got with Terry feeling and Roy Keane. And the joy in their faces, more so than my own, was absolutely amazing. It just mm. meant so much to everyone concerned. And Houghton with the shots, and it's there! It was just a massive moment in football, and Ireland played really, really well. It wasn't kind of, you know... Four five one. They had, they had a real go at the Italians, which which Jack, to be fair to him, that was the way he was. He went, you know, he, was, he didn't respect anybody in, in 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 that regard. Bring me back, and I'll do the job for you, Jack. And he's done just that after only eleven minutes. Final score: Republic of Ireland one, Italy nil, and another crucial goal from Ray Houghton, who on this occasion had improvised in the choreography of the celebration. The funny thing was, after the game, you know, I've come out and meet the press and they were all saying, why did you, you know, do what you did? And they kept saying, what about your, your roly-poly? And I'm looking at them thinking, what are you talking about? I don't do that. I just <laughs> run away with my arm. I was like, what are you saying? He said, no, when you've done the little forward roll. Yeah. And I'm, I could not remember. And it was only when I seen it on the TV, I was actually embarrassed. Because I've never done that before. What are you doing, you idiots? You know what I mean? That's not you. I think that's probably where Robbie Keane robbed it off, right? Somersault, because... I don't know why. I don't know why. You look back and you think, "Why did you do it, right?" But he's never, he's never said why. I think he just didn't know what to do, so he did a little roll forward. But he came up with another magnificent goal again in a major tournament. Again, he'd done it against England, hadn't he? In '88, he just, yeah, he knew how to do it. On the, I was on the bench. Obviously, I was injured, so I was quite close to Jack and. Jack was going crazy at Ray during the game before he scored. He's going, look at that little so-and-so, where's he running? And we're all looking, thinking, what? But Jack would get a, 
a bit of an idea in his head sometimes that we're all, none of us are seeing except Jack would see something and he says berating Ray during the game and he's going Morris have a look at Ray's so he's going for Ray and of course then he scores and you know you, sometimes you look at Jack and say well come on Jack you know let, let go the goalkeeper hadn't a clue where the ball was going but neither did Ray he came in from the right hand side onto his left foot Went for a shot, got a half a chip and the ball, the goalkeeper had come off his line and it just drifted over his head into an empty net. Wonderful goal, but I think it was a mistake and an accident, wasn't it, Ray? The Italian side included the likes of Baresi, Maldini, Baggio, Albertini, Donadoni, but many feel the giant in Giant Stadium that day was Irish defender Paul McGrath. He had a, an injury to his shoulder. Had a virus, It was a he? virus in his yeah. shoulder. And really, and truthfully, should not have played. I mean, he was nowhere near right. But Paul, being the, the person and the individual that he, he is, decided that uh, he, he could come through it. And I've got to say, on the day, he gave one of the best displays you've ever mm. seen from a centre-half. <laughs> Even Baresi, the great Baresi, <laughs> turned around and said, I cannot believe that someone could play that well with what he's got. He says, it's, it's a mystery. It's an absolute mystery. That's how good he was on the day. Man of the match he was. Yeah. But we, we got, I mean, me and Ray got used to this because we played with him at club level yeah. and nine times out of ten, Paul wouldn't be training, but every week, the man of the match would come to the same individual. <laughs> so I got used to it with Big Paul and like, like Ray did. So special individual. Dino Baggio and in goes Roberto Baggio. McGrath's head got there. Dino Baggio once more. Again it's McGrath. Baggio once again. Signori Baggio. And once more Paul McGrath, the man to the rescue. One of the best centre-half performances I'd ever seen. And Paul playing well that day also let Babsy play really, really well. Oh, but Paul just didn't give... The centre forward a kick. He just every time he got in the way, he was defending wise as well. He was getting his body in the way, but he was he was just a actually you know if you talk about it, it was like a Virgil Van Dyke now on that occasion we just cleared everything. And Danny Kelly was in Giant Stadium that day. I remember the atmosphere in the ground like nothing I'd ever seen or heard before. It struck me that I was in the largest New York, the largest Irish city in the world, bigger than Dublin, and probably the Irish influence there, and the largest Italian city outside of Rome. This was confirmed for me when the goal goes in. The stadium literally erupts. Irish people going absolutely mad. Italian people going absolutely mad as well, because, of course, they expect to win this game. But instead of sitting there glumly, like England fans would do when they concede, they're all stood on their feet screaming. So both sets of fans are screaming at the tops of their voices. And I've been to a lot of rock gigs, and it's rare that you hear something loud enough to start feeding back on itself. There was acoustic feedback in that stadium just because of the loudness of the crowd. A wonderful day in the history of the Irish team. But en route back to base camp in Florida, there was concern, great concern. Dehydrated striker Tommy Coyne drank gallons of water to try to provide a drug test. On the flight back to Florida... He was taken seriously ill. We're on the plane, flying obviously back down to Orlando, and all of a sudden, he was in the aisle, on his back, and the doctors and the, and the medical staff were, were were over him and were thinking, "Crikey, O'Reilly, what on what on earth happened?" The long and the short of it was, he drunk that much water that actually it had the same sensation. As though you were drunk, he poisoned his body because he could drink. He, he drank too much water. I didn't. I went. Yeah, of course. But apparently, it's true. It's absolutely true. It then became that kind of you can imagine, can't you? 
the Irish joke and you know what was the name of the player who drank so much water he was drunk after Ireland had their best ever result in a World Cup competition Tommy Coyne Thankfully, Tommy Coyne fully recovered and was in the Irish lineup for their next game against Mexico in the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. But bowl? More like a crucible, a cauldron. And temperatures went sky high when a FIFA official wearing a yellow baseball cap took centre stage. John Aldridge blew a gasket. You are listening to Coming to America, Ireland at USA 94. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Flimsy stands slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident we offer a lifetime warranty. So elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M. O-D-I-L-O dot com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. This is Ray Stubbs. You're listening to Coming to America, Ireland at USA 94, a look back at the World Cup finals of 25 years ago. Having beaten Italy in New York, the Irish squad returned to base camp in Orlando, Florida to prepare to face Mexico. But unlike today, when World Cup teams are locked away, surrounded by security, the Irish team hotel was open house to fans and broadcasters alike. It was all relaxed, very relaxed. The first thing we always did as players, we tried to find out how we could sneak out. Ronnie Whelan. So you'd be trying to find fire escapes and places that... Jack doesn't know we're sneaking out to play golf and things like that. We, 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 one day we, we said, look, let's go play golf. A few of us went to play golf. They sent a stretch limo for us to take us to the golf course and we had to get it to park, get, go, go quick, park around the corner. The limo parked around the corner and then just eight or nine of us just jumped in and, and we got off to play golf and come back. But it was always like that and I'm sure Jack knew most of the time what we were doing but we weren't doing anything majorly bad and it wasn't causing any problems but it was always different with the Ireland squad. Mark Lawrenson. It was fun and the training sessions were open. They were open to all the media. There was no secrets. I mean, because everybody would have guessed probably mainly Ireland's best team. And Jack was just, this is us. This is what we do. It ain't an issue. There'll be a sing-song on the bus. 
going to training, even if it was only five minutes, sing song on the way back, and it was just all great fun. It really, really was. Ray Houghton. Whenever we went to <laughs> play anywhere, it was always a bit bizarre because back then you know, the fans were usually part of the Irish makeup, you know. So wherever we went, the fans normally came into the same hotel. Mm. I mean, I could tell you about nights out after matches where we, when we beat Scotland one 0 in the qualifications for the Euros, we actually brought a piano from upstairs down uh, to a room where George Hamilton and that was all playing and all the supporters are down there with the fans till three, four in the morning, singing and dancing, uh, celebrating the victory. That's what it was like. Tony Cascarino. Jack wanted that. He, he wanted us to be part of the fans. I can remember when we played Malta away. We, we went out, we won the game, we'd qualified for a tournament and I was at the bar standing saying, where's Aldo? I'm going to get him a drink. And all I see was Aldo being crowd surfed across the place at the bar. Crowd surfed to get to the toilet, <laughs> and that was so much of what our relationship with the Irish fans and our particular squad. You know, the whole trip was was surreal, and just just the fact that the team was so open and so accessible. And I think even the hotel were worried at some stage because it just packed, as you know, absolutely totally packed. And you know, they, they go to Jack or Morris Setters or. Or, or whoever, and say, look, is this okay? As as in that, they were worried, and that the boys were, well, what's your problem? We're here to have fun and have a few beers and have a laugh. But talk about security. The Irish players were protected by phasers. The annual Star Trek convention was taking place at the team hotel. Lieutenant Whelan and First Officer Aldridge, both wearing Spock ears, was a photo opportunity this reporter didn't want to miss out on. It was very bizarre, wasn't it, that there people walking around in all the costumes, as you say, Spock and, and all the others. And it, But it, it, was a, it was a laugh that we had looking at these people, grown men and women walking around in all the Star Trek gear, which was pretty weird for us. But it was a huge convention. There was an awful lot of people there. I just remember walking in from wherever we'd been and all these kind of weirdos, as I called it, turned up, yeah? But they, even that that's, didn't bother anyone, did it? It was just like, well, you're in America. When you come up to us and, and you asked us a couple of questions and, and we, we didn't think you were going to fall for it. But then all of us started talking in some far-off language from an outer galaxy or something like that he kept saying zig zog 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 and you, and you then we had the big ears on and we kept saying sorry Ray sorry Ray and you kept asking us the questions and well, yeah finally you, you did get it and as the Irish players mingled with Captain Kirk lookalikes Jack Cholton was in his room with a barrel of Guinness on tap doing his washing Jack had or someone had rigged up for Jack a little like washing line across the window and I honestly distinctly on my kid's life walked in there one day and he had all his smalls hanging on the line. He did his own washing? Yeah, did his own washing. And, you, I mean, you, people don't believe it, did it? And so he had the Guinness there and the smalls there and you go, oh, really? On match day for a midday kickoff against Mexico, the temperature soared. It was unbelievably hot. I remember doing the commentary just in my shorts. Not not a good look, but it was so, so hot. And if I remember rightly as well, didn't we play at some godly hour, as in when the sun was almost at its highest? And you kind of knew we were, we, we were going to be in trouble with that. And there was real concern over how the players would cope with the conditions. 
it led to one of the strangest yellow card decisions ever. I think pitch side was, was 120 yes. or, or thereabouts. We were absolutely uh, roasted. But they came up with a, what they thought was an ingenious plan, which was to get bags of water and put it around the pitch, the circumference of the pitch. So when you felt thirsty, you picked up a bag. But they hadn't quite worked it out. It was when you bit into the the bag of water, it actually went down your shirt. None of it went in your mouth. It wasn't a well-executed or well-thought-out plan. And even to the extent, I remember being on the pitch and Jack shouted at me, have a drink, have a drink. And I'm turning around saying, I'm not thirsty. And he went, you are. You just don't know you're not thirsty. As if I don't know my own body. So he said, have a drink, have a drink. So they threw on a, a, a bag of water, which I picked up. And then the player that I'm supposed to be marking, he gets the ball. So I start chasing him with a bag of water, make the challenge and got a yellow card for carrying the bag of water. Now I'm berating Jack. Look at it, I told you, I should have picked the bag of water up and he's on the side. It was farcical, it wasn't yeah, it? It was yeah. absolutely farcical. On the pitch you could see Stan Staunton, his head was on fire and others were really, really feeling the heat. Some reason I don't I don't ever remember Roy Keane ever feeling the heat, and I don't remember ever drinking that much water either out there. Because he was somehow had done all his refueling or whatever beforehand. I'm sure he did drink water, but he got around the pitch so well back then. But I suppose he was a young lad as well, which 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 does help. But the mood was that oh, this is not good. We we were struggling here badly. Mexico had lost to Norway in their opening game. They had to get something. With over an hour of the game gone, Ireland were in trouble. Mexico two up. Ireland needed a goal. Cue a crucial moment. Jack Charlton decided on a double substitution. Jason McAteer for Steve Staunton, John Aldridge for Tommy Coyne. But a FIFA official wearing a yellow baseball cap moved centre stage and stopped John Aldridge from going onto the pitch. He didn't take it well. well what's going on here? That John Aldridge wants to go on and the officials won't let him on. Do you know as well? He made, he made the right mess of it, the fourth official and the fifth official. Coin has gone off and the referee hasn't yet allowed Aldridge on. Well, he let Jason go on and Tommy Coyne and Stan come off. So it, put in perspective for those people listening, we had 10 men on the pitch. It was ridiculous. He's, and we're getting beat 2-0 and, and the ball didn't go out of play for four minutes. So I've lost, I've lost, I've lost a plot after a, yeah. a minute and a half and I'm, I'm going at it. nothing to be proud of I have to say but uh, I didn't know the camera was on me to be quite honest you know unfortunately he was on me for 50 seconds and, and words come out that I didn't even know I had any vocabulary to be quite honest Aldridge Sheridan and McAteer back for Aldridge yes that's it Well, Aldo said if he had been on that four minutes earlier, who knows, we might have even got a draw in the game or we went on to win it. Great story. I mean, John tells his story. He was After the game, he, he rung up his, his dad back in uh, back in England and he's having a chat and he says, can I speak to my mum? And he, he, he said, no. And he went, what do you mean? He went, she doesn't want to speak to you. And he says, why? He said, well, she heard your language and she's a very religious woman. And after what you said, she, she just doesn't want to speak to you. So there he is at the World Cup <laughs> in America, ringing back his mum and dad and his mum won't speak to him because of the language He's that cursing. came out of his mouth for 50 seconds. Although Ireland lost 2-1, that John Aldridge goal proved to be crucial. The incident with the fifth official cost Jack Charlton a touchline ban and a fine. John Aldridge was fined. 
But the Irish fans sorted all that out. I can't remember. All that was fined, say, $4,000, and Jack was fined $10,000. But they did a whip round in Ireland, didn't they? And it, and it made about $90,000 when um, they did a whip round in Ireland. And so that paid off there. Yeah, they're fine. And then there was a few bob left for charity, I think. On the same day Ireland lost to Mexico, Italy beat Norway. So going into final group games, all four countries had won one, lost one. It was back to New York to face Norway. And the pre-game Irish mantra was quite clear. Don't lose. Win it. I mm. think more than anything. You know, it, it was they knew it was, it was going to be a tight match, as as did we. So th- there was a huge emphasis on both teams going into it. We knew if we didn't lose, we'd be OK mm. and probably got through. So it was, it was a tight affair. It was a dour game. It wasn't a great game to watch, you know, because it was a lot of long balls either side. There was very few chances in the game that I can remember. What amazed me about the game is that they actually show no ambition to try and win the game. And they had to win the game. The Irish hope, they're hugging up one another. And uh, from Jack Charlton's reaction there, he believes they've done it. With Jack Charlton up in the gods serving his touchline ban, it was nil-nil at Giant Stadium. Italy and Mexico drew 1-1 in Washington. The group finished with all four countries on four points, all with a zero goal difference. The maths were complex, but Mexico won the group the Republic of Ireland second, Italy third, but they went through as one of the best third-place finishers. The important point, Ireland were through into the knockout stage of the World Cup for the second tournament on the run. It always was a great dressing room, So, that, but, but to qualify again for the next stage of the World Cup, um, it was what we wanted, it was what we, we, we were there for. We didn't feel it was any major miracle that we'd done it because we, we, were, we were together and we knew we could do these things. Um, but then another game, yep, yeah, we were ready to go. I think it was only Jack who wanted to go home. He needed fishing again, didn't he? So back to base camp to the furnace of the Citrus Bowl in Orlando to play the Netherlands in the last 16. Had he been fit, there was every likelihood Tony Cascarino would have played up front. But as his efforts to recover from injury looked doomed to fail, he took extreme action. I went and saw a faith healer. I didn't believe in seeing a faith healer. I went to see it because I was at desperation stage where I just felt... Uh, if I've got any chance of playing against the Dutch, because we've got to have our group, uh, if there's any chance of me playing, um, I wasn't going to be able to do 90 minutes, but I go and see a faith feeder, didn't really believe. Three days later, I was training. As the game approached, everyone in the Irish camp knew that facing the Netherlands was going to be a big test. We knew it was going to be tough because they had some exceptional players. And in that heat in Orlando, you knew with their younger and they were a bit fresher than us and a bit more pacier. They were going to pose problems, and that was certainly the case. A goal down early on. Ireland conceded a second just before half-time. The long leash shot this time, and Bonner makes a hash of it, and Vignon scores the second Dutch goal, and that might be the killing blow. I can remember there was one of them goals that goes in that deflates you, you know, and you think, oh, how are we going to get back into this? Were we good enough on the day? Probably not, and unfortunately for Packy, it's a bad mistake that lets in. This was a second goal, but uh, yeah, again, I think for us, the way we played football was a bridge too far, and they were they were a lot better than us. Quarter finalist in 1990, last 16 in 94, two great tournaments for the Republic of Ireland. When they got home, they received a hero's welcome. And Jack Charlton addressed a huge crowd in Dublin. I'm sorry we didn't win the World Cup for you. But we did our best. 
And I can absolutely promise you that every player here did his utmost, and I can ask no more of them. And next up, we look back at the conclusion of World Cup 94. The first World Cup decided on a penalty shootout. Roberto Baggio, the saviour of Italy, throughout this tournament. You're listening to Coming to America, Ireland at USA 94. Time to conclude this look back at the World Cup finals of 25 years ago. It was on Independence Day that the Republic of Ireland were knocked out by the Netherlands and it signalled the end of the tournament too for the host nation who were beaten by Brazil. But en route to the knockout stage, the United States had enjoyed a victory over Colombia, but it led to tragedy. Andres Escobar had scored an own goal. When he returned home to Colombia, he was shot dead. Danny Kelly reflects on this dark chapter for football. The important thing to remember about the Andreas Escobar thing is that we look at 94 as football reaching to all corners of the world. It is the most televised, um, it is the most successful, it is the most financially successful. It takes football to places that it, it didn't even know it wanted to go. The downside of that, no, the reverse of that, it's not a downside, the reverse of that is that we forget that these teams and these footballers mean something differently back at home. They're on a global stage but what the teams mean back in their own countries is very different to what they were presented there. And so you have this Colombian team, Valderrama's hair and all the rest of it, and it's, it's a fantastic football team, but there's something else going on at home that we didn't know about then. Now we've all seen uh, Narcos and read the books and all the rest of it. Nobody knew that this stuff was going on in Colombia. And so when Andreas Escobar scores their own goal, it is a football drama on the global stage. But its meaning is completely different back in Colombia. We had the death threats against the the coach. There was all these words. that There was a lot of gambling money on the way they performed and the cartels had got heavily involved in the Colombia side. And then, of course, just over a week later, Andres Escobar, who scored the own goal that effectively knocked them out of the group stage, was murdered. It was a shocking time. That was a, a terrible, terrible story. A changing political landscape had brought first to World Cup 94. Russia were finalists following the breakup of the Soviet Union and World Cup holders West Germany were now Germany following the country's reunification in the autumn of 1990. From a few firsts to a last, last World Cup for Argentina's Diego Maradona, but not before he scored a terrific goal against Greece. Oh, lovely play there as Redondo tries to go through. There's a show! Glorious goal! Maradona and look at these emotional scenes there is something extra special about that the crazed goal scoring celebration made more sense when after Argentina's next game Maradona failed a drug test that revealed the stimulant ephedrine he was expelled from the tournament Argentina went home after losing to Romania in the last 16 here's TalkSport presenter Andy Jacobs it's when he did that celebration and the fact that he had to lose so much weight to get into condition to play play the match. And it was a, sh- a shame for his legacy because he'd been so brilliant, or I believe at hand of God, but it, as a player he'd been brilliant in 86. And in 90, he'd single-handedly got Argentina to the final. 
But in 94, he was a sort of shadow of himself. And having subsequently seen the film of his life, you realise what a massive amount of pressure this guy was under and why eventually he became the, the bloke he was. And when he did go so mad, I mean, that wasn't normal. I mean, you, you, there was something instinctively that you thought, well, is he on something right here? Because it wasn't right. We all celebrate Tardelli after he wins the World Cup, running towards the cameras, screaming. But there was just something in Diego's eyes as he did the exact same thing a few years later that makes you think, aye, aye, what's going on here then? I mean, it was, it was the, this was the actions of a madman. And if you were the drug-testing people, you'd be going, uh, Dave, that one for sure, yeah. After beating the Republic of Ireland in the last 16, the Netherlands fell to Brazil in the quarterfinals. Sweden beat Romania in a penalty shootout. Italy beat Spain. But what are the defending champions, Germany? The holders had arrived with the PR campaign that included their World Cup song being recorded alongside the village people, no less. For sure, Far Away in America deserves a place in the Hall of Fame of World Cup songs. But on the pitch in America, didn't work out for Germany. They lost to Bulgaria in the last eight. Diakov, Diakov, nicked out by him. And Letzkov going in, and it's another one! Bulgaria are in front, Letzkov! It was a shock to some, it wasn't to Danny Kelly. Bulgaria had a magnificent team. And not only did they have a magnificent team of footballers, they had a magnificent team of characters. Every one of them has gone on to be a sort of cult hero in this country uh, and in their own country and beyond it. Mihailov, the goalkeeper, with his wig stuck to the top of his head and then the glue slips, so doesn't he, in the corner, he moves his wig back on, goes on to marry the most beautiful woman in Bulgaria and become the Minister of Sport. He still is a very, very big wig. Trifonov at the back, um, the one who looked like a werewolf, and up front, Stoichkov was as good as any footballer around that time in that position, with the possible exception of Romario. It looks like an upset on paper, but that Bulgarian team, to my mind, was one of those that comes along like a Croatia team. You know the sorts of teams I'm talking about, where we sit there, as we always do, going, and uh, it'll be Brazil, and it'll be Germany, and it'll be Italy, and you forget there's always one team that's got a bang, brilliant group of players up their sleeve, and in that occasion, it was Bulgarian. In the semi-finals, Bulgaria were beaten by Italy, who had recovered from that shock group stage defeat to Ireland. Brazil beat Sweden. And after a goalless draw in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, played in front of over 94,000 people in a temperature of 27 degrees Celsius, for the first time, the World Cup final was decided by a penalty shootout. I think the final was a real letdown. I think it was the nightmare for the organisers because, of course, here's a country which doesn't recognise low-scoring games, really. They might, you know, 9-4 in the baseball, they might settle for that. Um, but really what they like is scores where both teams get 50 or 90 in the basketball. And suddenly in the showpiece event, you've got two teams who have played very, very well um, and, uh, and all of that. They get into one of those games of football that all of us who follow the game recognise entirely. They're cancelling each other out. And the great players on both sides, your Baggios and your Romarios and your Bebetos, can't get the ball in any kind of advanced position. 
there's a moment in The Simpsons, which I think was deeply influenced by that game, where they're trying to um, to explain soccer uh, to somebody, and it cuts to the commentary team, and there's a ball being passed around, and he goes, Smith to Diaz, back to Smith to Diaz. And I think that's what Americans thought about that final. And even those of us who love the game thought, hmm, I know, it's not very good, is it? It all came down, of course, to the uh, the penalty shootout. And... There was something about that moment. As soon as Baggio started to walk up from uh, the centre circle to take the penalty, the Brazilians around me were almost cheering because his body language, and you sensed it, his body language was so bad, you thought, he's going to miss this. So the pendulum has swung wildly against Italy now. Roberto Baggio, the saviour of Italy throughout this tournament... But he was injured, and they, he carried them all the way to the final. He'd scored all the important goals. The one in Nigeria when he'd got a goal, got them into extra time, and then scored the winner. He'd been the kind of talisman, but his body language just didn't suggest a guy that was going to score a goal. And all these Brazilians around me saying, he's going to miss, he's going to miss. And sure enough, he, uh, he sticks it over the bar. I've never been so sure someone was going to miss a penalty since uh, Dave Bamber in the 1991 playoff final for Blackpool against Torquay for the old fourth division. It's not often Dave Bamber and Roberto Baggio get a mention in the same sentence, but I was that sure. I'd done two or three of Italy's games as well while we're traversing across the United States and he almost single-handedly got them through to the final. He'd been absolutely fabulous but it just shows you even the best miss. The Brazilian players afterwards, you talk about key things that happened that year. Of course, one was OJ on the on the first day, and the other was the death of Elton Senna, a kind of huge Brazilian hero. And the players, almost immediately after they uh, Dunga had got the World Cup, they walked around the ground, they brought out this banner as a kind of celebration of Senna's life, saying they, they did it for him. So what was the legacy of World Cup 94? Well, it was the first time the tournament finals were held outside of Europe and Latin America. For sure, it was the catalyst for expansion. It has since gone to Africa, Asia. It goes to the Middle East in three years' time. It returns to the United States, who alongside Canada and Mexico will host in 2026. The kind of legacy of 94, from their point of view, is the MLS. The only way they were able to get the last World Cup was to make sure they had a permanent league in place. I suppose that's the great success story from that World Cup, really. I mean, yeah, football did grow in the States, certainly, but the fact that there is still an established league and it's still there and, you know, thriving to an extent. We've seen a lot of our big players, like still Wayne Rooney and David Beckham and others kind of do very well out there and they're still building new franchises. So that's probably one of the great successes from the USA's point of view from that 94 World Cup. Overall memories of World Cup 94? The Republic of Ireland beat a team that reached the final. Their fans lit up the tournament. A tournament that kicked off with a missed penalty by Diana Ross that broke the goal. It finished with a missed penalty from Roberto Baggio that broke Italian hearts. It was 25 years ago, a quarter of a century ago, when the World Cup went to America. You've been listening to Coming to America. Ireland at USA 94.
a TalkSport exclusive production. Flimsy stands slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress.